Please join with me in a word of prayer. Well, dear Lord, thank you for this Sunday and all that it means. Lord, I ask that you would help me as I preach and proclaim your truth. And I pray for each one of us that we would recognize the incredible gift that this is to us. For I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, I welcome you this morning to church as we worship the Lord. This is Easter. It's the Feast of the Resurrection. And it is, I don't even want to say arguably, it is simply the greatest event that has ever occurred in human history. And if scientists should someday figure out how to actually make a flux capacitor and a time machine, and you get the opportunity to travel in it, don't even think twice. Just simply go back to these three days. This weekend is amazing because a million years, I'm not being facetious or emphasizing, a million years from now, there is one event in history that we will keep coming back to over and over. It is this, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that significant. And yet, not all people quickly embrace it. Not all people trust it or believe it. One of the first Christian authors that I read as a new believer in my late teen years was a guy named Josh McDowell. He he later wrote a number of books, but he initially sought out to disprove Christianity. He was irritated with his friends that were Christians and other people claiming that they knew Jesus and that Jesus had been risen. And so he thought, well, he was a pretty smart guy. He thought, I'm just going to go and look at all the evidence and I'm going to show how historically this is a terrible thing, terrible idea. It's not even supported. And like so many before him, you know what happened to him? He became a Christian. He came to the place where he recognized that this is just too much historical evidence to cast aside. One of the things that he said in his research was this. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on humanity, or it is the single most important fact of all history. The thing about that is, though, just like Josh McDowell, he didn't readily accept it in his heart. It is possible to have a head knowledge of something and believe in your mind that this is true, it makes sense, and not have it go to your heart and affect how you live and move from head faith into heart faith. It's quite possible for that to happen. Do you know the name Charles Blondin? He was a famous tightrope walker. He was a showman of sorts. He liked to do these circus type of acts. And in the year 1859, he strung a cord across Niagara Falls, and he did all sorts of things on this. He walked across it forward. He walked across it backwards. He did it blindfolded. He did it with stilts on. I'm not sure if this part is true, but I read it on the internet, so I'm going to go with it. He also brought a stove across, halfway lit it, cracked an egg, and fried an egg on it while on the, on the cord over Niagara Falls. One of the other things that he did that was important to us is that he actually pushed a wheelbarrow across it, and being the showman that he was, when he got to the crowd on whichever side, he riled them up and he said, who thinks I can do it again with the wheelbarrow? And they all were like, yeah, we do. And then he said, okay, climb into the wheelbarrow. <laughs> and no one did. No one climbed in, but there was one man, the manager, who was the guy who had, who had set up all of his gigs and had seen him do incredibly balanced things, who, had, who understood how competent this guy was. He actually climbed on his back, and, and Blondin took him across Niagara Falls on his back. This is all over the internet. You can see pictures of it. You can read his bio. That is a perfect illustration of the difference between head faith and heart faith. 
It's one thing to say, yes, I believe you can do this. It's another to put your own faith, life, trust in it. It's one thing to say that the tomb is empty. Yes, we celebrate Easter. Great, this is an awesome day. It's a totally other thing to say, and I bank my life and death on it. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I'm going to live for his glory. I'm going to do what he says. That is a different thing. To move to that place of trust changes you. What does your response to this message look like? I mean, where are you with the empty tomb? Think about that for a minute. How do you respond? And there are a number of different ways that people have responded. Some have unbelief, but without examination. They simply go, ah, I'm just, I'm not buying it. But they're not like Josh McDowell. They haven't gone and done an actual examination of the historical facts. They haven't considered what the options are. If he didn't rise, then how do you explain a number of things? And I'm not going to get into explaining. I want you to know, though, that there are great reasons out there. There are great resources you can read about that. But some people just go, forget it, without actually doing any of the homework to see if it makes sense. Other people choose avoidance. They're busy in their life doing other things, and so it's just kind of something that's out there for some people. It's not direct disbelief. It's just being distracted with other things in life. There are other people who have the head knowledge that I mentioned. They go, yeah, it happened. It's a historical fact. Empty tomb makes the best sense of all the facts. I think he rose. But they haven't moved to the place of faith in him. They haven't climbed into the wheelbarrow, so to speak. Now, our text this morning is from Luke's account. There are four accounts out there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And an interesting thing, which, by the way, lends itself to the credibility of this book, is that all four accounts are slightly different actually considerably different in details. Now, you can synchronize them, and others have done this, but it's one of the reasons that we were pretty sure that these guys didn't talk about this. They didn't corroborate their stories. Imagine uh, being a, a parent of a bunch of kids, and they all come to you. Something bad happens, and they all come to you with the exact same story, right? Immediately, you know they made it up. They've colluded. They pulled all their details together. They got their story straight, and they're telling the same lie of what happened. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not like that. They're actually very different because each individual author is telling the story from their perspective based on the eyewitness accounts that they heard. So were there two angels or one? Well, it's possible that there were two, and somebody couldn't see the second one. It's possible that they only point out one in one instance because that was the primary speaker, and they didn't mention the other one standing next to him. Those kind of details can be sorted out. But my point is that we have four different accounts, and today we're looking at Luke. Now, there's probably more of you than there are Bibles in here, but if you want to see it in black and white, it's on page 884, and we're going to look at this from Luke chapter 24. Feel free to grab a Bible if you want to follow along. I want to point out another thing about this account. The closest followers of Jesus did not readily accept it. There are words in here. For instance, in verse 4, it says that the women were perplexed. Not what you'd expect. In fact, if I made this story up, I would make them look like heroes, doing the I told you so to everybody else. But instead, they're perplexed. They're confused. The word perplexed is in verse 4. They're afraid when the angels show up. The men don't believe them and say it's an idle tale. And Peter merely leaves this account, this part of the account, he just, he goes home marveling. Marveling. Wow, that's interesting. It's empty. What could it mean? Wonder. Wow. Marveling. Not moving to faith yet. And I, I want for you and for me to move to the place beyond marveling, to the place of engagement with the living God. Not just thinking, that's interesting. 
But now, how do I, how do I live differently because of this truth? Now, let's back up for a minute to the women. The women had a restless Sabbath. You know, on Good Friday, Jesus died. They watched this. They grieved. They wept. It was painful to see it. They loved Jesus, and here he is dead on a cross and put into a tomb, and they followed him all the way to the tomb. And then the rules for Jews on a Sabbath was to do no work. So they couldn't tend to his body like they wanted to. They did death a little differently in that culture where a tomb was a temporary place for a body, and then a year or so later, they would collect the bones into a smaller box and put them in a place with all the family's bones. So they kept their families all together. And so they would prepare spices and, and ointments and embalming type things to put on the body as this process took its course. So what would be natural would be for them to come on, on Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday and keep doing this for the first few days until the process was well underway. But they couldn't do it on that Sabbath because that was work and they weren't allowed to do work. So they didn't, they didn't have a very restful Sabbath. First light, they get up and they go to the tomb. Now keep in mind, Jesus had multiple times said, the Son of Man himself will be denied, he'll be crucified, he'll be buried, and on the third day rise. In fact, that's why there were guards there. A bunch of the Jews came to the Romans and said, hey, This guy said when he was alive that if we killed him on the third day, he would rise. If the disciples steal his body, we'll have a bigger problem on our hands than we currently do. So post a guard. So Pilate agreed. They put a guard there for the first three days. So there were guards there. Now think about this. The women on that first day of the week, Sunday morning, Easter morning, are going to the tomb and they have this conversation. They're all called Mary, it seems, or mostly. So Mary, 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 let's... Let's grab some spices and go to the tomb to anoint the body. They did not have this conversation. Let's go to the tomb, assuming it's empty, because that's what he promised, and let's bring some spices just in case we misunderstood. They went fully intending to find a body there. And so when they got there, it says they were perplexed. Huh, the tomb's empty, there's no body. That's where they were. And honestly, that's exactly where I would be, and that's where you would be. So don't don't think I'm up here uh, making fun of them. I would have done the exact same thing. So the women then run into these, they says they were men in bright clothing, but we know they're angels. They're angels and they say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. In fact, those very words uh, our communications team put together on the wall of our lobby out there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. It raises a helpful question for us. Am I seeking life in something that can't bring it? Am I pursuing life for myself from something that is dead? Now, the classic three Ps are what people go for. Pleasure, possessions, and power. Most people spend their lives chasing one or all three of those. And I want you to think for a minute, anytime you've caught them, anytime you've had a certain pleasure or you've had a certain possession or you've had some power, how long did it last before it was no longer life-giving to you? You have not been fully satisfied because that's not fully alive. You were meant to have full life in Christ, in Christ alone. And those are the things that people occupy themselves with. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? What you need is the Lord. He's alive. That's who we're seeking. That's who they were seeking, but they didn't understand yet. And so they said, remember what he said? That on the third day he would rise? And then it says they remembered. So then they go back to the, it says to the eleven. 
That's the 12 apostles minus Judas who betrayed Jesus and then the others that were with them. And they tell them what happened. We went to the tomb. It was empty. Bright angels appeared. They reminded us of what Jesus said. We remembered. He said he's, he's risen. So what's the response? Well, the men don't believe them. It says they considered it an idle tale. They're making this up. Of course, why would they make something like that up? But so Peter then runs to the tomb to see for himself, and our section today stops with him returning home marveling. I want us to move beyond marveling today. I want us to consider what happens next. Jesus didn't die so that people would marvel at him. He didn't rise so people would marvel at him. He rose so that we could be fully alive in him. And I want you to move to that place this morning. He shows up in people's lives. If it actually happened and the tomb was empty, that means that there is a living Lord on the move, ruling the universe, present in people's lives. How do you explain that Christianity is the biggest religion in the world 2,000 years later, despite persecution and all the resistance? And people today, one after another, claim to know God. They claim to be Christians, even at great personal expense. How do you explain that? Well, it's because he's alive. He wasn't in the tomb. And he's here by his spirit present in this place right now with us. He shows up later. Later that evening, he shows up to Peter and the others and shows himself to them, shows his physical body to them. And it, it's so interesting. You have to, you have to jump ahead a bit in Luke's gospel, but it says, um, this would be in uh, 24 verse 41, it says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, so even after they saw physical Jesus and touched him, they were in disbelief, it says, for joy. Like, they were confused. It was, it was breaking all their mental categories. They really didn't expect this. And they were marveling still. But Jesus kept working on them. And think about the fact that Peter became the rock on which he built his church. Later, he became so bold that when he was going to be murdered, martyred for the faith, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified. So they actually crucified Peter upside down. That's how much he got transformed. He went from a coward and an impulsive, selfish person to someone who was willing to die that kind of a death. That's because Jesus met with him. He met with Mary Magdalene, the first person to see him alive at the tomb. She thought he was the gardener. And you have to read the other gospels, John's gospel in particular, to pick this up. Again, by the way, another reason why we can trust the scriptures, if you made that up, you wouldn't make a woman the first witness because they didn't have credibility back in that repressive culture. So you would make a man the one who was the first witness, not a woman, but unless you're telling what actually happened. So Mary Magdalene was a notorious sinner and she met Jesus and he changed her life and she became a leader in the church. And then it's interesting that Thomas, for whatever reason, was not there that first Sunday night with the rest. One scholar called that taking a calculated risk in missing church. <laughs> he missed church and Jesus showed up. So a week later, a week later, he calls him out. Jesus says, Peter, or Thomas, look at my hands. See, put your fingers here. And then Thomas worships him. Thomas goes from being the notorious Thomas, doubting Thomas, to a bold missionary. You know, he took the gospel all the way to India and died in India for the faith. That's how much it changed him. So hear this. The resurrection makes two things possible, a relationship with the living God and transformation. You can actually be changed. I wonder in your life if there's anything, any character flaw, any habit, any unforgiveness, hatred, addiction, anything that you know is wrong, 
and you've tried in your own strength to get rid of and you just simply can't. I wonder if there's something that you would ask the Lord to transform in your life. I'm telling you, he changes people. I want to come back to Josh McDowell for a minute and his story. You know, I read his book, More Than a Carpenter, a real little book, um, early on in my Christian faith, and I forgot his own personal testimony until I read it again this week. He got to the place where he knew mentally this had to be true, that the tomb was empty. He got to that place, but he says because of two things, pleasure and pride, he didn't commit himself to Jesus. The pleasure, he liked doing certain sinful things, although he didn't recognize that he wasn't finding life in those things, but he just didn't want to stop doing them. And the pride of being his own Lord, he didn't want to have to surrender to God as his Lord. So he took a long time, but he describes it in the words of Revelation 3, where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock, and if anyone opens, I will come in. Josh said that Jesus was just hounding him, trying, knocking on the door, let me in, let me in, let me in, and he just, he couldn't let it go. And so finally, he prays this sinner's prayer, real simple prayer, and, and he makes Jesus his Lord and his Savior. And he's, and you know what happened? Nothing at all. Nothing. In fact, he said something happened. I, I went backwards. I, I got frustrated. I was, I, I, I was disheartened. He was expecting lightning bolts. He was expecting fire and power. I don't know, angels. I don't know what he's expecting. But he thought he, he started to think, maybe I've been duped. I prayed for him to come and be my Lord and Savior, and nothing happened. And now he was dismayed. Except it took a little while. It took a little while for the Lord to work in his life. He, he describes it as about six to 18 months all sorts of transitions started happening. People would ask him, how do you know that you're actually a Christian? So you said this prayer, but how do you know it took? And he said, because I've changed, because God has changed me. Well, how did he change him? Well, one, Josh was this guy who had a really active mind, and he was fussy and busy and restless. He went from one activity to the next, one project to the next. He never sat still. He was always trying to hang out with people and find some social event to be at. The worst thing for him would be to have to stop and sit quietly. And even when he did that, his mind was racing. He was always restless. And he recognized about six months in that that had stopped. He, was, he had this, this settled peace had come over him. And he realized, I'm not spinning as much as I was. I'm okay. I'm at peace with things. Another thing that was a real problem for him was he had a very short temper. He was very quick to get angry. In fact, he was violent. He said he had a scar on his body from a time when he got in a fist fight and almost beat somebody to death. He was so full of fury and anger, he, and he got wounded in that fight too. And he said he went 14 months without losing his temper, and then he lost his temper and made up for all 14 months, actually. <laughs> so it's not perfection, but it's process. But he recognized, I went 14 months without losing my temper, which for him was a record in his life. He recognized that was part of God's transformation in him. And then there was one thing that was much bigger than both of those. He actually had hatred in his heart. And the man he hated more than anyone else in the world was his own father. He was in a small farming town where everybody knew everyone. Josh's dad was the notorious town alcoholic. He was a drunk and a fall-down sloppy drunk, bad. Josh says it was so bad there were times when he would actually tie his dad or chain him out to the barn and drive his truck around there to hide it so that when guests came to the house, he, did, he, was, he would lie and say they were out, he was out on an errand. He was that embarrassed. All of his life, he had this frustration. Afterwards, he became a Christian, and God gave him love. 
Two weeks ago, Dan gave a sermon. He showed a video of a man whose son was murdered, and God in the courtroom put love in his heart for the murderer, and he adopted him basically as his own son. That happened for, for Josh. The love of God came into him so much that he had love for his father, this fallen down, alcoholic person whose life was really broken. And he went to him, and he told him what happened, and he said, I love you, Dad. It was so moving for his father. He saw that this bitter young son of his had changed so much that he asked, do you think God could change me? And one of the best gifts that Josh ever got in his life was to pray for his father to become a Christian. And his father never drank again after that prayer. One time he took alcohol to his lips and when he tasted it, he threw it away and never drank. Just like that, a lifelong addiction was healed. The Lord did it. The Lord transformed him. But there was one other man that Josh had a problem with. On this farm, they had a, a man named Wayne who was the helper, the, the farmhand. And any time that the parents were not there and his mom went into town, she would say, Josh, Wayne's in charge. Do what he tells you. And from the time that Josh was six until he was 13, he was abused by this man. At 13, he was strong enough to say, if you ever touch me again, I'll kill you. And that was when it stopped. But that's when his anger and his hatred were at their peak. And they kept destroying his life until he met the Lord. The Lord gave him the ability to go to Wayne and forgive him sincerely and say, what you did to me was evil, but I forgive you because Jesus has forgiven me my sins because Jesus has become my Lord. And he shared the gospel with him. I don't, know if, I don't know what Wayne did with that, but what's important is to recognize that a man who was restless in his heart and mind, who was, had a short temper and was full of anger and hatred, was able to move to a place of, of health in all of those categories and forgive people the world wouldn't understand. It all happened because of the resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, he still does that today. He's offering you a relationship and he's offering you transformation. Now I'm going to conclude this morning by praying the prayer that Josh actually prayed. He wrote it down. When he became a believer, he wrote down the prayer that he prayed. You know, he's a kind of systematic guy. Um, I want to invite you to pray it with me. If you're a Christian, consider it a re-upping on your, your vow to the Lord as your Savior and Lord. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want to invite you to have the courage to do what Josh did and place your trust in Jesus, the Lord. I'm going to pray it slowly. It's, I don't know, four or five sentences. I'm going to pause after each one. So you can either pray it out loud or you can pray it in your heart silently. But let's, let's now pray. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me and cleanse me. At this very moment, I trust you as Savior and Lord. Make me the type of person you created me to be. Amen.